Sermon Study Guide, Cosmic Conflict, Part 1. I want to read the quotation from Great Controversy, page 570. It says, It is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the, what does it say? The character of God, the nature of sin, and the real issues at stake in the Great Controversy. Great Controversy, 570. Before we get to the heart of the message proper today, I want to spend a few moments in background on the book of Revelation. There are many people living today that believe that the book of Revelation is a sealed book, that the book of Revelation cannot be understood. You can know that that is a misunderstanding just by the title of the book of Revelation, because it says the revelation or the revealing of Jesus Christ. The very nature of the book of Revelation is that it can be understood. Amen? In the beginning of the book of Revelation, it says the angel came to John and signified the book of Revelation, meaning in the Greek it says literally that he placed it in symbolic language. The book of Revelation is different than any other book of the Bible. It's apocalyptic and it is to be read symbolically unless the context determines it to be otherwise. Other books of the Bible you read literally unless the context determines it to be symbolic. The book of Revelation is quite unique. I have a chart here on the screen, and I apologize that the text is kind of small, but the book of Revelation can be divided into two major genres or segments within it. It's historical and eschatological, meaning it has an end-time emphasis pointing toward the future. It is historical and eschatological. A little literary device that helps us to understand the structure of the book of Revelation is that it is written in a poetic form. For those of you that have ever tried to read the book of Revelation, you will notice immediately that the book is not linear in nature. It's not chronological. Have you ever tried to read it and you're like, why is this here? And it seems like themes come up. It's not written chronologically. It is actually in what is called a chiasm. The book of Revelation is a chiasm. Now, what is a chiasm? Today, when we write poetry, we write it in a particular stanza form of rhyme and rhythm. But ancient poetry followed a literary structure called a chiasm. And I have a, uh, a slide here on the screen that illustrates the nature of how this chiasm works. And this, for me, has really helped me to understand how the book of Revelation is to be understood because we look at it and this is incredible how the book of Revelation is laid out in a poetic form and this was discovered in the 1940s. Uh, Dr. Bill Shea at the Biblical Research Institute, he retired a number of years ago, he unearthed a lot of the study that we benefit from today as Bible-believing Christians regarding the nature of the book of Revelation. Here we have it. You notice the Prologue parallels the epilogue. You have seven epistles, seven angels, seven bowls, seven seals, 144,000, 144,000. Two beasts, two witnesses. Women clothed in the sun, woman seed keeps the commandments of God. Dragon persecutes the woman, dragon in heaven. Woman flees to the wilderness, woman flees to the wilderness. And then there you have it, Revelation chapter 12, 12. Satan is cast out of heaven. Isn't that amazing? 
the way that the structure of the book of Revelation is in a chiastic literary form. The center of the book of Revelation, which we're going to be going today, is Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 is at the apex of this mountain of the chiasm. It is the center, the focal point of the book. The thematic structure points to Revelation chapter 12. Now here's another thing about Revelation chapter 12. Is that Revelation chapter 12 is also a chiasm. Now let me back up here a little bit. Revelation is written as a chiasm. The center of the chiasm is chapter 12. And chapter 12 itself is in chiastic structure. Here we have it. It's all laid out. And then you can see the chiastic structure here. And then here is the center of the center. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. So I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Here is the center of the center. I think I have a slide here that says, the center of the center of the book of the Revelation, according to scholars, is Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Isn't that fascinating how this book is structured? And here is the pronouncement. It is salvation-centered in nature. You can see it there. It's a beautiful pronouncement, and it's a pronouncement from heaven. Here is the apex of the thematic chiastic structure of the book of Revelation. 1416 in your pew Bible, if you have a pew Bible. 1416, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, last book of the Bible. Here it is, the center of the center of the book of Revelation. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night have been cast down. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. There is the center of the center of the book of Revelation. Now is salvation come and the power of his Christ and the devil is cast out. We have our study passage. And I want us to read the three verses preceding the center of the center of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, 8, and 9. It was granted him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Thank you. Just keeping you awake here this morning. All right. Chapter 12, verse 7. Then, and war broke out in heaven. That, was, that sounds better, right? Okay. And war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the Bible says, So the great dragon was cast out, and the great serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So there you have the three verses 
prior to the center of the book of Revelation. Here the Bible talks about a cosmic conflict between two entities, Michael and his angels and the dragon and his cohorts. This cosmic conflict did not begin on earth, but it began where? It began in heaven, and the conflict was so fierce that it got to the place where the two opposing parties could no longer coexist. One had to leave, had to vacate heaven. And this cosmic conflict is known as the great controversy theme that provides the backdrop for the entire Bible. The controversy, the cosmic conflict between Michael and the dragon. A few basic questions that we need to ask ourselves. Who is Michael? Michael is found both in Greek and Hebrew. It's found both in the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's found specifically in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. It says, Michael shall stand up. There's been a lot of people that have different understandings of Michael, but Michael in the Hebrew is Mikael, El God, but it literally means one who is like God. God. Mikael. And there's three verses that give indication as to who Michael is. Let's go to Jude 9. I don't have this in your study guide, so you may want to write this down if everyone, anyone asks you who Michael is. Jude 9. Jude only has one chapter, so there's only, uh, it's very easy, easy to miss as well. It's found in 1405 in your pew Bible. It's right before the book of Revelation. So if you go to the book, uh, beginning of the book of Revelation, and uh, turn to the next book. It's, it's right there. 1405. Jude 9. And here you have another mention of this person, this being Michael. It says, yet Michael the who? The archangel. In contending with the devil when he disputed the body of Moses. Now the point I want you to get from this verse is very simple. Michael is who? The archangel, that means chief, chief among the angels. So follow and keep this thought in your mind. Michael is the archangel. Let's go over to the passage that is on the screen, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. I'll have a page number for you here in a minute. We're trying to discover who Michael is. 1 Thessalonians 4.16. It's page 1358. 1358, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and I read this verse at every memorial service or funeral. And there's a reason why. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. There you have it, the archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Won't that be a wonderful day, by the way, when Jesus when the archangel pronounces from heaven and when Jesus comes and the dead in Christ are raised from the dead, that'll be a spectacular day. So let's go back to Jude 9. Michael is the archangel, but it's the archangel that 
comes from heaven with a shout, and that shout, that voice from heaven raises the who? Raises the dead. The voice of the archangel raises the dead. Now let's go to John chapter 5, and this is our last verse in this series. John chapter 5. That's page 1226, 1226 in your pew Bible. John chapter 5, verse 26, 27, and 28. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So who also has life within himself? Jesus, the Son. And has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment also because of the Son of Man. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear whose voice? Jesus' voice. Everyone that's in the grave will hear his voice. Verse 29. And come forth those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Let's put it together here. This reminds me of geometry a little bit. The archangel equals Michael, right? And then the voice of the archangel raises the dead. But in John chapter 5, verse 28, it says the voice of Jesus raises the dead. Therefore, Jesus equals who? Michael, which equals the archangel. Oh, isn't that great? Now, when the Bible talks about the controversy between Christ and Satan, it is put in the terms of the controversy between Michael and the dragon. Let's go to our next question very quickly. Who is the dragon and where did he come from? There's a couple verses that are there on the screen. I have them here before you. And we need to make note that the book of Revelation is actually a direct allusion Two out of three times it quotes uh, portions of the Old Testament. And here is Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. Thus saith the Lord your God, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Some people have wondered, where did the devil come from? Did God create the devil? But Ezekiel tells us that God did not create the devil. God created a perfect being in the very beginning. It says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You remember in the Old Testament, there was an article of furniture that was in the most holy place of the sanctuary. It was known as the Ark of the Covenant. It was the only piece of furniture found in that that room. And the Ark of the Covenant had a fascinating structure in that you had the throne of God, and then above the throne of God, you had angels that were hovering over the throne of God. Anyone seen depictions of the Ark of the Covenant? According to this verse, Lucifer, the covering cherub, was the closest to God. He had the distinct honor and the responsibility of being one of the two angels that stood closest to the presence of God. What an awesome privilege that was. He was one of two that had the distinct privilege of being closer to God in direct proximity than any other being 
in the entire universe. What an awesome privilege. You think about Moses and how his face lit up for days after being in the presence of God for only a few moments. Here, this being, holy, had a sacred responsibility. The verse goes on. You were on the mountain, the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created till, what does it say? Till iniquity was found in you. Now this is the mystery of iniquity. How is it possible that in the purity of heaven, with a perfect being, that it can originate sin? Mystery of iniquity. And you think about the trajectory. Here you have a being that stood the closest to God that was physically possible. And through a series of events, this being fell from heaven, from Lucifer, and became the devil and Satan and is wreaking havoc here on earth. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You're corrupted. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. It was pride that caused Lucifer to fall from heaven. We come to our thesis question. We know that this controversy is between Christ and Satan. But what is the controversy about? What is the central issue in the cosmic conflict between Christ and Satan? This is important for us to recognize. Now, this is the first in an ongoing series through the month of October on the notion of the issues in the cosmic conflict. But what is the central issue in the cosmic conflict between Christ and Satan? Because when we think about controversy or conflict in heaven, I don't believe that it was a physical conflict. In other words, it wasn't like Star Wars, where they're going back and forth. Now, there may have been some of that, but the real issue in the great controversy is not physical, it's spiritual. Amen? Because the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in darkness. Now, there are some issues that were there in the great controversy between Christ and Satan that led to this conflict in heaven, and it's now being carried out here on earth. And we need to ask ourselves, what was it that caused that conflict? What is the central issues that are there? Isaiah chapter 14 gives some indication as to what happened with Lucifer. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Notice there's a lot of I in there. Lucifer desired three things. He desired a higher position, an exalted throne, rulership, and dominance. He thought, you know what? I'm pretty good. Matter of fact, I can do a better job than God himself. I want you to think about the implication 
of Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9, where it says, his angels were cast out with him. That gives the indication that there were some compelling arguments in Lucifer's claims. So compelling that even perfect, pure angels believed some of the arguments in the great controversy. And in my imagination, I believe it went something like this. Lucifer goes to one of the other angels and says, you know what? You don't know what I see. You you can agree that I stand closer to God than any one of the rest of you. And he gives the implication that perhaps there's something that God is holding out on. He can't be trusted. I don't know about some of the things that God's doing. And and it started like a seed. And, And matter of fact, I think I can do a better job. God isn't running the universe right. And the angel started to think, you know what? I think he's got a point. Here's Lucifer. I mean, he's, he's the closest to God out of, out of anyone. And, and some of these seeds of doubt started to build so much that the Bible tells us that a third of the angels, one-third, took their side with Lucifer. These are not paper-thin arguments in the great controversy. They were compelling, compelling enough that a third of them took their side against the government of God. Lucifer questioned God's authority, and he thought that the government of God was based upon faulty principles. What did the devil attack? Here you have it there in your study guides. This is from Great Controversy 583. This is a central issue in the Great Controversy. Here it is. From the beginning of the great controversy in heaven, it has been Satan's purpose to overthrow the law of God. It was to accomplish this that he entered upon his rebellion against the Creator, and though he was cast out of heaven, he has continued the same warfare upon the earth. I have a picture here on the screen of the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about how earlier Lucifer was one of those covering cherubs, standing over the throne room of God, covering the Shekinah glory. There was something fascinating in the Old Testament tabernacle that Moses was given specific instructions about what he was to do in the building of the tabernacle, specifically the Ark of the Covenant. There was something unusual that Moses did under the instruction of God He was to take the Ten Commandments, which was written with the finger of God on tablets of stone. Incidentally, it's the only part of the Bible that God wrote with his own finger, the Ten Commandments, found in Exodus chapter 20. And Moses was to take that tablet, those two tablets of stone, and he was to place it underneath the throne of God, inside the ark. I want you to think about the implications of what this is saying. This is saying that the foundation of the government of God is the Ten Commandments. 
the foundation of God's government is the law of God. And the devil's brilliant. He knew that to undermine the government of God, he had to attack the commandments of God because once he attacks the government of God or the law of God, he is undoing or taking away the foundation of God's government. He is saying that the law of God is invalid, restrictive, can never be kept. And by doing that, he undermines God's character. By the way, have you ever heard that before? That the law of God is no longer valid anymore? Have you ever heard that the Ten Commandments are no longer binding? Those are not new arguments, by the way. Those arguments started in heaven. I want to point out here on the screen an interesting depiction of what the Scripture points out. I've shared this in a prophecy seminar before. This is a comparison of God and his law. The Bible says in John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spiritual. But then on the other side, it says what? His law is spiritual. God is love. His law is love. God is truth. His law is truth. God is righteousness. His law is righteousness. God is holy. His law is holy. There's another slide. God is perfect. His law is perfect. God stands forever. His law stands forever. God is good. His law is good. God is just. His law is just. God is pure. His law is pure. God is unchangeable. His law is unchangeable. You see what's happening here in the great controversy. The devil says, I can do a better job. And he attacks the government of God by attacking the law of God. But really attacking the law of God is attacking the character of God. These are the issues at stake in the great controversy. And they're being played out right before our very eyes. There are people in the world today that say, listen, we don't have to keep the law anymore. I want you to think about the implications of the plan of salvation because in the beginning, when there was sin, when Adam and Eve sinned, if the law was no longer binding and the law could have been changed because the wages of sin is death, the easy thing for God to do was to say, look, you've broken the law, you're guilty of death, let me just change the law. Wouldn't, wouldn't that have been easy? That would have been a lot easier. Let's, let's just modify the law a little bit so that you can live. But what God did 
was he recognized that the law is a transcript of the character of God. It is the essence of who he is. It cannot be changed. It's written in stone by God's own hand. So here's the problem. Here the sinner has broken the law. He deserves death. How does God solve this problem? God meets the requirements of the law by dying. Amen? That's grace. Amen? We deserve to die because we have sinned. God says, look, I'll come and die for you. If anything, the death of Jesus shows the validity of God's law. It is, listen to this, I I just wish I had the words of angels to portray this. It is so unchangeable that God himself had to die to meet its requirements. So unchangeable. Grace is not cheap. It's expensive. Expensive doesn't do it justice. All of heaven was poured out in the gift of Jesus Christ. It cost God everything to save you and me. Because the claims of the law are unchangeable. And God says, this is so unchangeable, but I tell you what, I love you so much, I'm going to come down and die to meet that. And this is where at the cross, justice and mercy meet together. Because in the death of Jesus, it shows the law can't be kept, but it shows there's grace, amen. Because God says, I will die in your place. Wow, I pray that if you haven't accepted Jesus today, that you do it. Amen. You can do it right now because Jesus loves you more than anyone else in the entire universe. He paid it all. And all is an understatement. God is love. His law is love. A transcript of God's character and the foundation of God's government. And this is the central issue in the cosmic conflict and the great controversy. What does God want to do for us in the last days? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, as we wrap up here today. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord I will put my laws in their right and they shall be my people. This is what God wants to do. This is the vision that God has for you and me. And I think of the Old Testament where the people in the Bible, they took this literally in the Old Testament. They would take parchments of the law of God and, and put it on their foreheads and on their parts of their body. They were missing the point because God was saying, look, I don't want to put them on a parchment. We're not to go around with the Ten Commandments taped to our foreheads. God says, I want to do something even greater. I want to write 
the law in your hearts. Because the law of God is not just a list of requirements. What it's really talking about, the center of the law, by the way, is love. That's, that's what it is. Because the law of God being written in our hearts is really talking about the character of God being reproduced in his people. This is the message. God will have a last day people whose law is written in their hearts and minds. I want you to think about the implications of that. That means that before Jesus comes, that God will have a people that are so in love with Jesus, so dependent upon Jesus, so dependent upon Christ's righteousness covering them, that they will allow God to reproduce His character in God's people before He comes. Do you believe that, friends? Amen. That's the only way. So dependent upon Jesus that you say, Lord, I want your character to be reproduced in my life. And what a testimony that is in the great controversy because the implications of that is that it doesn't matter your genetics. It doesn't matter what family you come from. It doesn't matter the things that you may have struggled with all your life. It doesn't matter the social economic status into which you are born with. You can be born into this world the most broken individual, having no chance. This tells us there is hope. That God can take you from the depths of sin and recreate in you the image of God. And that in the scope of the great controversy, it's not only to transform your life, because that's ultimately what God wants to do. He loves you. But in the scope of the great controversy, there is even a greater argument than that because every person that is so broken that accepts Jesus as Christ as Lord and is transformed into the image of God is a statement in the great controversy that someone is willing to trust in the character of God so much that they're willing to be it transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Hallelujah. Amen? And that's why in Job, when God and and Satan are having this conversation, God says, have you considered my servant Job? Wow. Have you considered my servant Job? Wouldn't it be awesome if we become so dependent upon Christ and His righteousness that God could say, have you considered the university church? Have you considered Laura Heilig? Have you considered Eric Shaw? These are people that have accepted my righteousness. As our last verse, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 12, 14 verse 12, last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. 
What an awesome privilege we have to be a part of the final movements. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, 14, 18 in your pew Bible as we wrap up here very quickly. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God, but not only that, it says, and have the faith of Jesus. Scholars have noted that that really can say, and have faith in Jesus. Here's the pronouncement at the end of time. God is going to look down from heaven. This is an issue in the great controversy, and this is why it becomes so apparent. Here is the pronouncement. Here they are. Do you see it? Here they are. Here are the people that have my character. Here are the people that keep the commandments of God, have my character, my transcript, my commandments written in their hearts and minds, and it says, and have the faith in me, the faith of Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I look at the cross, I want to say, Lord, I want that in my life. Amen? As you look at your response here today, between you and heaven, Lord, I pray that you would write your law of love in my heart. Lord, I pray that your character would shine through me. I just want to invite you to raise your hands if you want to say, Lord, I want your character to shine through me. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have just scratched the surface today in the cosmic conflict. Lord, we thank you that at the cross there was not only justice, but there was mercy. Lord, we are humbled to recognize today that Jesus was the embodiment of all of heaven, that sin cost you everything. And Lord, today we thank you that in the role of salvation, you do not just forgive us for sins of the past, but you transform in us the character of God. And we pray today for the gifts as well as the fruits of the Spirit, that you would help us to be more loving, more kind, more compassionate, that people would see Jesus in us. But not only that, that in the cosmic conflict of the great controversy, that that pronouncement can come from heaven saying, here they are. Here are the people that are just like God because they've accepted his righteousness. Lord, we recognize today that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We thank you that, that you work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. And we pray that you would transform us, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. May you be glorified. May you be uplifted. Bless us this Sabbath. May we sh show Jesus to someone today and this week. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www audioverse org.